Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well. For those of you in Melbourne, it's really tough right now. We're in stage four lockdown and I know for many it's really difficult to find time to relax, to self-care, to work, to look after family. And for those who are doing it all from home, that's also really difficult. Having one space be so many things. I just wanted to let people know that it's okay not to be okay right now to have some self-compassion and some empathy for just how difficult this is, all the change, all the kind of mental fatigue and decision fatigue that comes with having to constantly adapt to new things. I'm sure we'll get through this together and um, yeah, my thoughts go out to everybody. This episode comes a little later than normal. Uh, I took some time off to self-care, to rest and recuperate. And so uh, yeah, we're a little bit behind schedule, but all good. This week's episode, I chat with Joe and Alice, and you might remember them from a previous episode uh, late last year where we looked at their journey from students to starting a social work magazine. Um, I think we've clarified it now as being called a periodical, but uh, nevertheless, uh, Social Work Talks Quarterly is uh, written by Joe and Alice. They combine interviews from a number of different uh, social workers in the field, uh, share their experiences, have other people write guest articles, a whole bunch of really great stuff. They talked to me uh, in this interview about their previous edition, which was all around mental health and their upcoming edition, which is due to be launched uh, very soon. So check them out on Facebook. I'll put some links in the show notes if you like what they write and you want to get involved, maybe get in contact with them. I hope you enjoy my episode with Joe and Alice, the first returning guests on the Inside Social Work podcast. Okay, welcome back for the first time. I'm having a return return guests on the podcast. So welcome back, Alice and Joe. Hello. So when we first spoke was probably last year. Um, you just sort of had a few issues down of your social work talks quarterly. How's it going? Where are you at now? Good. Surprisingly good. We've just been chipping away and... We've had a recent issue for mental health is what we looked at um, and some really interesting conversations we had there. Um, we've got another one coming up as well, but it was just so good to see how responsive everybody was, especially for us because we planned back in February. Then with COVID-19, it was a bit uncertain about how's this, how is this going to happen and will people have time and just adjusting to a different way of living. Um, but everybody was still pretty helpful and we were still like able to get through and talk to who we wanted to talk to and then still get it out um, in time for people to read. So it was good. Yeah, I don't know about you, Joe, but I've really found the people we talk to are just incredible. Like they're out of this world. Like, you know, I'm a really two-year-out social worker and I'm talking to people like Sonia Taskin and Charlotte um, Tesweri. And I just think to myself, like, how did we get to this point where these people, they're sharing these incredible stories and they're really their core values of like decolonizing and reframing education and um, thinking through mental health in a much more holistic perspective, which is really all that social work's about. Mm. Um, and we get to share that story with people. And I think, yeah, that's just been a really lovely uptick of this year, I think given everything that's happened. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, just, I agree. I'm always amazed because I, yeah, you know how it is, like, you know, reach out to people that don't, I don't know, in different states. Sometimes I forget about the time zone difference, which hasn't caused too much issue. But yeah, you know, like when we had the mental health issue and we spoke to um, Pauline Connolly in South Australia, and I think the story part of it makes it more accessible for people Um, because that research that she was doing, it was on vicarious trauma. And that's that's a pretty like hard topic to get into, but I think it was just having it as that conversation made it a little bit easier to actually access and talk about. Yeah, I'm always excited. Yeah, and I think as well, like for every social worker, the reason we get into social work is kind of what keeps you going in social work. We all have those experiences or those core values or even... And I think that what's really been lovely is talking to people who aren't your typical white social worker female Mm -hmm. and hearing their stories, you know, how Charlotte um, experienced incredible like cultural genocide growing up and how she's like reframing who she is as a social worker so she can be like the forefront of decolonization. That story is more important in some ways than, you know, a graph that shows the work she's done because that story frames what she's doing. And I think that's been really lovely to be able to share those stories. Mm. If we rewind back to when you first started, what did you, like, how did you picture the journey going? Like what were you hoping to achieve when you first started the um, newsletter? I mean, we didn't think it would go like this, (laughs) that's for sure. (laughs) What does that mean? I I think when we initially spoke about it, we're just like, I think we're both pretty idealistic, optimistic people. And so we just like have these ideas like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we did this and talked about this? And like, even with the, you know, decolonizing social work, like that, I don't, I find that they're big topics and it can be hard for me to approach as well. Um, so initially what we, you know, talked about and what it's evolved into where it's these amazing people who are, you know, sometimes the forefront of the field that they're in or the area that they're in and then they, give us time in their busy schedule to, you know, share these um, experiences and their knowledge. I don't know. I just didn't expect people to respond. (laughs) Yeah. I think when we started this magazine, it was Joe's baby. And it was really an opportunity for our class to have a network once we left university. So we could just keep in contact of where people were at. You're looking for a new job. Check out this person. They're working in this organization. And then, yeah, now it's spanned to, hey, actually look at what this great person is doing and all of these social workers in Australia and even internationally, we have a few people from the UK and America checking us out. Mm. Um, Yeah, being like, hey, this is what people are doing and you need to tune in because it's going to change your practice. I think that's been really exciting. Mm. How has it changed your practice? So the upcoming issue will be number eight? Yeah. Mm. What have you oh, learned? Number seven. Oh, yeah, sorry, number eight. You're number right. eight, the next one. Yeah. So what would be some of the learnings that you've taken for yourselves and how has that shaped your practice? Mm-hmm. For, so for me, I'm, I'm working in child protection, like on a project I've just finished. So I'm still studying. So even though I'm still part student, I don't feel like I'm fully immersed in practice yet. But I think, I think for me, it's really been just expanding my understanding of what social work is, but what it can be. I find that when I go, when like we go through 
well, when I've gone through a study, the expectation or understanding um, is going to be, we're going to go all into child protection and sort of work in statutory agencies. And whilst a lot of people do that, I find that just having these conversations with people from all different specialties within social work really just expands. Like when I sort of feel a little bit like, I don't know, um, it just expands, I guess, the opportunities that I feel like that, that are available. And sometimes I catch myself as well. Like, so looking at the moment, I'm looking through a lot of records for um, carers for DCJ, which is the Statutory Child Protection Agency in New South Wales. And just looking through some of the, you know, records that case, like the casework notes and stuff like that, just the language that's being used and then seeing how it's changed from like, the 70s to the 90s to to now and then it's also reminding me that oh there's times when I'm talking with somebody and they can in if they've worked in the department before it's almost like PTSD for them because that language is like re-alerting them to when that ex when they've had that experience with the department so it's yeah just sort of catching myself out and just always trying not to be complacent in the pace, place that I'm at with social work if any of that made any sense. Yeah, it did, Joe. It's it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear those reflections. Mm-hmm. Alan? Yeah. I think I work in foster care and out-of-home care in New South Wales as well. Um, I work for an NGO. And I've really been on a journey to understanding um, the importance that Indigenous people place on culture, mm-hmm. um, particularly in DCJ at the moment and going through the courts. There is a huge emphasis on kinship and this sense of, like, in, there's been situations where you see horrific things have happened to a child and a magistrate will still decide to place them back with that family because of culture. And coming from a very white Anglo background, that's been like, yeah, it's done my head in. I'm like, how can we put this child back in danger? But really like through the conversations I've been having with Charlotte and with Sonia and with Jim Ife as well, who's someone I've like worked with through social work talk, um, I've really been on this journey to kind of understand just how huge Western knowledges are in social work. And I think this is something Joe and I come back to. We studied at Western Sydney University and there's a really big emphasis placed on like recognising, identifying and really deconstructing these Western knowledges. But I think as a really young social work in what is a really fast paced, very distressing at times, often you feel like, there's more paperwork than sense. And it's just been really grounding to come back to that sense of like, you are privileged. You operate in a Western knowledge that privileges your skin color and your experiences. And every time you feel overwhelmed, you need to come back to that reality because otherwise you will drown. And I think that's been just so helpful through all the conversations I've been having. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear you both talk about those experiences and a lot of the guests, when we talk about what's kept them feeling connected to their work or what's helped get them through, a lot of them talk about just connecting with other social workers and staying in the loop with either mentors or just peer groups. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, hearing you both reflect on some of those conversations you've had for the, for the newsletter, for the magazine, it makes me think that's, that's what comes out of having those networks. 
you're able to reflect on those things. Cause I know for most people, I mean, most of my friends who are social workers, their family aren't, or their partners aren't, or their friends are, you know, friends from high school who've got different careers. And that's great. I mean, I will say you have to only have a social worker friends, but there's different conversations you can have when you reflect on your practice with other people yeah. who are in the same field. Yeah. I definitely find that like if I'm a bummer at a party, that's telling me I need to go talk to my social work friends. You know, like someone will bring Black Lives Matter up and I'm like really deep diving into how we can be deconstructing the way that we like oppress black people. And people are like, I just wanted to say that I posted a hashtag. Like <laughs> it's a Saturday night, man. And I'm like, oh gosh, I've got to get back to those social worker friends because they get it, they understand. I get that. No, I get that response too. But I think it's also having that conversation or those conversations with so many different people because a lot of us, yeah, do have partners that aren't in social work. You you have to sort of, because we are able to reflect so much on those conversations that we've had, you recognize that your audience is not just going to pick up and understand those words that you use straight away. So I find even though we're in social work, it really isn't just limited. Anybody that's living and interacting with other people is going to be touched by social work. And I think that's something that I find because, yeah, my partner's not in social work at all, but I can still have a conversation with him. He usually walks away having a bit of a headache, but (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, we need to have the conversation because there's a lot of things that are left unsaid. And when they're left unsaid for a long time, people don't question it or people don't think about it because it's not spoken about. So I think, yeah, it can be (laughs) difficult sometimes when you have, when you're that person at the party, but yeah, it's just, I find that because when we're able to talk to these people, it's conversational. That for me makes things make more sense and they're more in context than if I'm just reading a straight out, I don't know, research article or journal article. I feel like sometimes it's really disconnected and, um, in this upcoming issue, oh, well, the one after the, the one that we have on edu, oh, sorry, the one we have on education, um, I was able to speak with Maggie Walters. So basically anybody that's done social research will know that textbook that her name is on. And she's done a lot of work. So she's, you know, really uh, well known for doing quantitative research. And I never you know, really thought too much about it, but it was just really interesting to have the conversation of her research journey. So she's a Palawa woman, so from Tasmania, and just her talking about her research journey and how she didn't even finish like year 12, but then she went on to do a PhD and then she's done this and she was, you know, did her honours, didn't know what an honours was, but she did really well. And just understanding that story and then seeing how it also like tracked with the progression of how she changed the way that she put out, you know, like those textbooks on research methods. So one thing that I thought was really interesting and I asked her about, you know, for example, they're in the fourth edition now for the social research methods. And there's an extra section about um, different people's research journeys and approaches. And I was just sort of asking her in that conversation, you know, when we do frontline work, there's a lot of cultural awareness training and stuff. But how does that work in textbooks or in, in teaching that stuff? And, you know, she said something which I thought was really interesting because initially she said when you sort of go in and if you apply for like 
an identified position where it's, you know, specific for an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, it gets to a point where you just sort of get pigeonholed and that's all that you can do and it can sort of ruin your career. So she said the way that she would sort of present that information and the way that she has included that information about cultural awareness was indirect. So instead of just straight out saying like, all of this information, she spoke and included information about your standpoint and how the methodology um, all goes into your research, you know, the approach, the perspective, your uh, religious affiliation, how all those things feed into the research that you do. So in that way, it was highlighting that you have to be aware of those, you know, like the privileges you have or don't have and how that might be coming into the research. So, yeah, I just thought that was... It was a very interesting conversation. When I went back and listened to it, there were many like uh, amazing pieces of um, just life knowledge that I couldn't completely comprehend during the conversation. <laughs> but, yeah, I can't wait to uh, to read that. If we if we take a step back, um, so this will we're recording this a couple of weeks probably before your next issue comes mm-hmm. out. So this would be a good challenge. Can you remember the titles or the topics of your last seven issues? And then we can kind of maybe recap your last one around mental health and talk about oh. what's coming up. <laughs> or do I have to, do I have to go back to your website and have a look? Uh, we might have to go back to our website. <laughs> They're all on the Facebook at, at social work talk quarterly. The first relaunch issue that we did, which was in October last year, that was the one where we really sort of changed the format of how we did social work talk. So it switched to, instead of just being that cohort of masters of social work students at Western Sydney, it was involving those other people and just people who are involved in social work. And that was focused on community. Um, And then I think the one that we had after that was, Decolonization. Decolonizing social work, um, which that was a really interesting one. That's when we had a PhD candidate, Charlotte. So that was a really interesting story because she's from Uganda, but then studied in like Sweden and just. And now she's in Parramatta of all places. (laughs) Making up her own methodology uh, as you you do in a PhD. Not really, but. So then, yeah, there was decolonizing social work. And then we had the May issue this year for um, mental health in social work. And then this upcoming one is on social work education. And then the one after that will be on language, which I think will be interesting and follow on well from social work education. Definitely. For those who are interested in in learning more, we'll put links to the Facebook group um, in the show notes. But just a shout out. So it's, if you just kind of search in Facebook, social work, talk quarterly, it'll come up. Yep. That's yep. It. So if we go back to your, the May edition, what are some of the key things that you reflect on in the mental health and, and how did you choose the topic? Maybe that's a good place to start is how did, how do the topics kind of come up? Alison, I laughed so much about this. So we actually planned in Feb of this year. And when we do this, so that was our yearly plan where we just decided, okay, what are the topics that we're going to do? But because we're planning so far in advance, we never really know how it's gonna land when it comes out. But luckily somehow the universe just sets it out and it just seemed to be, we had planned to have the mental health issue for May. And with COVID hitting, it just seemed to fit really well with what was happening in the world. So 
the same happened with decolonization where I interviewed Charlotte for our community yeah. episode and afterwards, or like issue, sorry. And afterwards I called Joe and I was like, Joe, this needs to be its whole thing. Like this needs to be decolonization. And we released it pretty much around Australia day. Mm. And that wasn't on purpose. That just was good timing. Really. I think we often talk to our guests and our guests are what reframe what we're actually going to reflect on. Or we have a particular idea in mind. And then, yeah, you talk to a guest and you just think, Oh my goodness, my mind is blown. I need to rethink how we're going to put this like issue out. And I think with mental health for us, it was important to reflect on it as the um, AASW's mental health um, social work is kind of like taking on its own thing. And I think a really big question for us is like, why social work? Mm-hmm. Like there are many people who, you know, you've got psychologists and psychiatrists, um, there's counsellors, like all of these people dabble in mental health or spend a lot of their time in mental health so what is it about social workers that poise us to do mental health differently Mm. i think like like you know basically the time it takes to become a mental health social worker you would probably be just as good doing a psychology degree so like what makes us different and what poises us to address it in a different way i think that was kind of really what we were wanting to explore with our guests Mm. but i think there was another thing for us that um we felt really frustrated by with COVID and that was a lot of organisations putting the onus on social workers to be well. Um, And, you know, the kinds of work we do often, not always, but often it's really hard to be well because at the end of the day, you are messing around with people's lives. You're in the mess with them. You are experiencing their grief with them. You experience their joys with them. And then you're supposed to go home and pretend like it didn't happen. And so for us, we really wanted to talk about what is it that organisations can be doing for their social workers? Because if as social workers, we're thinking holistically and systemically, our organisations need to be doing the same. And so that was also kind of like another area that we were looking at. Yeah. And also with um, just doing social work, I, you know, when you go through uni, you do learn a lot about systems theories and how systems impact on the individual and So I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, for a lot of people, for example, who are on that front line doing that work and being exposed, well, obviously it's going to be implications. So if we can understand that for that, you know, marginalized individual, the system might be working against it. It's also like, okay, well, actually as a social worker, I'm within this um, system itself, which is, you know, whatever it is, whether you're uh, working for a state agency or not. So then how, can that system help support me, you know, to keep it sustainable? Because I just think sometimes it's, yeah, like Alice said, there's a lot of the onus put, is put onto that individual. And I, I just thought that it was a little bit ironic that we can see clients in that perspective being influenced by the system. But then at the same time, we've got to realise, well, we're sort of in that position as well. We just might not consider ourselves at that same level. So that was where that talk with um, Pauline Connolly of Centre Care. So they're based, she's based in Adelaide, just on vicarious trauma. So that was a study that they put out last year. Um, and they were looking at vicarious trauma and how that's different to burnout or compassion fatigue. And they were looking at it specific for their organisation and just, um, and it's not just the frontline employees as well. So they also included, for example, you know, the admin or reception staff, because they could be the first point of contact. 
And the thing is, when you think about it, they might not even have that level of training to deal with trauma and they're just answering the phone and being sort of bombarded with all this information. So that was really interesting. And it was good also because we were able to talk with Jonathan Louth, who's based at the, like, so they, he's at the University uh, of South Australia in the Australian, Australian Alliance for Social Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> And he, so they, yeah, they did the research and it was also good to talk with him so that he could give sort of like a brief synopsis of this is actually what we looked at because otherwise the actual study itself is about 50, 60 pages, which was a bit of bedtime reading for me. Um, <laughs> I think like this is what we wanted to do is we saw a great organisation like Centre Care who was putting their social workers' mental health and wellbeing first and they weren't just doing it like lip service. They actually were like, we need research. Like if we're evidence-based practice for our clients, we need to be evidence-based practice for our employees. Mm. Um, and I think Joe did a really great job of highlighting the great things they've done. And actually for my own organization, I sent them our article and was like to my principal officer, here we are, what do you think? And in her newsletters that have been going out in COVID, we're seeing her starting to implement some of the same conversations and same language and I think that's been really lovely to see um yeah that other organizations are taking note from mm. center care I do like the quote that you'd put in the article about Pauline sort of saying you know you've got the picture of her saying you know for heads of department to give themselves permission to ask you know how are our workers going it then kind of makes them responsible Mm. You know, so she sort of says, you know, that, that actually makes us very vulnerable to ask that question because when we ask it and we get the answer, then we have a responsibility to do something about it. And that's, that's such a powerful statement. I wasn't prepared for that answer at all. I thought she was going to give me a completely different answer. What did you, what did you ask? What was that in an answer to? I think I was just asking about how that, yeah, it's just testing my memory. But I think the question was something along the lines of, with this research, how do you think other organisations can learn for it or from it or apply it to their organisation? So I was thinking she was going to talk about, oh, yeah, this organisation could implement like this type of supervision model or something like that. And so when she said that, I was like, oh, wow, this is like stepping it way back, like starting from like square one, basically saying you're allowed to look at this. <laughs> So when she said that, I was just thinking, oh, I, I wasn't even prepared for that answer. But I thought it was really um, impactful what she said, because she's talking from that position where she would have come across that herself. And I'm pretty sure that there'd be a lot of other NGOs who would also be feeling that way, because then she was talking about, you know, sometimes you don't want to be able, have to ask the question because it is right. You then have to possibly do something about it. And then does it mean that there's a liability and then there's all of that talk and everything in relation to that, that somehow the organization is liable. And there's, so I just thought it was, yeah, really a basic starting point, but it's very foundational. Mm. And I think, I mean, one of the episodes earlier this year or late last year, I can't remember, we talked about sort of the staff burnout and, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if in the next, however many years it's recognized as you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was almost a class action. Like we yeah. know that this has been happening and I think you're right. Some people are scared to ask because then they have to do something about it mm. but by not asking and ignoring it. 
it's happening anyway and it's so much worse. Mm. Yeah, and I think we, like, we know that when we work with co-workers who say things to us like, I don't know if I can do this job anymore. Like, you know, there's that that is a regular conversation that comes up. And, you know, I have those thoughts too sometimes. The work we do is often hard. But I think it's very different to have that conversation with your supervisor knowing that they'll hear you and that the organisation will respond as opposed to, you know, talking about it at lunchtime with your colleagues and everyone saying me too. Mm-hmm. I think there's something really powerful about being heard and then having people respond appropriately. And that's what we do for our clients. And it's only fair, I think, that our organisations do that for us. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff in your mental health article because you not only just look at the topic, but from a variety of perspectives, which I think is a very different take on it than perhaps even the title might give it credit for because you're looking at staff, at clients, at the accreditation process, at people's experience, like the role of social workers in mental health. Like there's so many different angles that you look at it from. Well, we try and keep it interesting. I think that's part of the part of the change when we did sort of switch the formatting is because there are so many interesting stories, but it's not just the interesting bit. There's a lot of things that we're unfamiliar with because, for example, with mental health, it might only be a certain focus on it um, that these other things sort of, yeah, get left unsaid. But the way that it came together, I think it was just mental health can be, there's a lot that comes into mental health. um, And it was, it is a big thing to try to narrow down to, you know, couple of pages I thought an important thing and Alice and I both discussed it um, was just somehow getting the AASW to have some sort of message of support because a lot of social workers aren't members it doesn't mean that they shouldn't have some message of support from that body Um, and they were receptive enough when I did reach out to them that they were happy to um, so Christine Craig she's I think the national manager or, uh, sorry, the president. The, yeah, the president. Sorry, I can't remember her exact title, but it was really, I think, important for social workers to see that somebody at that level is giving these words of support. Um, so I thought that was really important to start off with because, like you were saying before, with COVID nineteen, it stresses people in in a way that isn't necessarily known. Um, when I was having that conversation with Pauline, she did say that there were staff like staff members, especially counsellors, who were finding it more stressful working from home because they couldn't have that silence that you would in a face-to-face interaction. So there was a bit of a pressure to always fill in the gap and not have that space. And then, then she also linked that to how there were changing practices around the way social work is done. So, you know, if you're having that, say, one-on-one session, you're not, like, leaning into, into the client and mirroring them because now it's like you don't want to have mirror say the the reaction that their nervous system is having because you in a, in a way that's sort of how you have that vicarious trauma so it was interesting in that conversation itself to see how when she was a social worker um and how that's changed and the practices then have changed till now but it still takes time to for the change yeah to occur like from that research um point of view and then have it actually filtrate into the way practice is practiced. And I think for me as well, the way social work does mental health is if you're a social worker, you do mental health. You might not be trained for it. You might not 
really be aware that you're doing it. But anytime you come in contact with a person who experiences some level of oppression, you are doing mental health. And I think it was important for us that, um, and this is something that Lucinda, one of the clinical workers, she also works in an out-of-home care agency, but kind of more at that clinical level rather than your typical frontline worker. Yeah, that was her thing. She was like, we need to be talking about mental health and we need to be looking at it at, from all these different angles because it's not like psychology where there's a very set idea and understanding of how you get from point A to point B in terms of you, this is where you start, there's a treatment, and then hopefully that person either has the coping strategies or the skills. You're just in the mess and sometimes there's no way out and it feels that way. And, you know, you've got housing as an issue. You've got food poverty as an issue. You've got period poverty as an issue. And that, you know, point A to point B with some kind of treatment in the middle is not the solution. And I think that's kind of what we wanted to show with this, that there is so many different ways to look at mental health and to address mental health. And actually that we are, yeah, a puzzle piece of mental health. We're not just professionals looking in. We are professionals looking out as well. Well, we all have mental health. And I think that's where the, the word can kind of be stigmatised. It's just like physical health. And every day we wake up feeling good or not so good or better than yesterday, or we have mental health in the same capacity. And I think we maybe don't understand that as well of, you know, our connections, our um, stresses in life, like so many things impact that just like physical health can change day to day. So the mental health issue has heaps in it. So if people want to check that out, there's a good kind of nearly 20 pages of stuff. So some really awesome interviews there. Tell us about what's coming up in the next episode, in the next oh, next episode. That's me. In the next <laughs> newsletter, mag, in the magazine. Do you prefer magazine or newsletter? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I call it a periodical. <laughs> periodical. All right. What's happening in the next periodical? Um, so we are going to be focusing on social work education and it's got, yeah, some interesting conversations. So I've been able to speak with Maggie Walter, um, like I was saying before. So she's, um, you know, edited the social research methods textbook, which every social work student would have come across. Um, and yeah, so that was a really interesting conversation. So really it was just talking about her work. So she's, yeah, done social work but also sociology she's also worked for the public service um, this is in Tasmania um, and she just talks about how that has um, impacted on her social research so she's a Palawa woman from Tasmania and that was a huge um, it was like the first question after I'd sort of just done the acknowledgement to country and she just said well basically we don't have any more elders any anymore because of genocide in Tasmania. And so that just blew my hat off. <laughs> so it was just interesting because then that was how it sort of framed her research journey. Um, and so how, you know, uh, you know, decolonizing social work research and how that's then played out in the books that she puts out. Um, she's also been really involved in the indigenous data sovereignty movement. So it's about collecting data in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but not from a deficit view, um, but data that's going to contribute to help um, create the future and the present that they want and have that they should have access to. So it was a really interesting 
um, perspective on on that because yes, yeah, she said that basically in a lot of the research that she's done, a lot of the conferences that she goes to, she you know would get frustrated because it was the same deficit approach. So if you if that's the only statistics that you have, then the you know implications for programs and the policies always going to be similar. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting um, conversation. Alice will be able to speak with um, a really interesting academic at our uni, Western yeah. Sydney. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Sonia Taxon tomorrow. Taskin? Taxon? Hang on, let me start that again. Taskin, sorry. I will be starting um, a conversation with Sonia Taskin tomorrow. She is a fantastic woman um, that Joe and I, she really framed for us what it meant to be a social worker when we were studying. Um, she and her husband have written a book called Disrupting Whiteness in Social Work. Um, yeah, all of the conversations and the, really the journey I've been on to understand my own whiteness and my own, um, yeah, really privilege as a social worker has been through her and her husband, Jim. Um, yeah, and I'm just really excited to talk to her. She has really interesting ways of doing education. Um, I think Sonia in particular, she is not happy with an essay. That's not good enough for her. She wants reflection. She wants something uh, Joe and I did when we were studying was um, we had to make a video talking about basically positioning ourselves in relation to Indigenous work and Indigenous um, experience. And I just think that's what we need in social work is more of that work. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be a very exciting conversation. Uh, you'll hear more about that when you read it. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, yes, yeah, Sonia was, um her way of assessing was very different. So that video essay, a lot of people, there was a lot of resistance as well because a lot of people were saying, oh, I don't know how to use this software. But that was sort of the point of it, that when you go into social work, you're going to be put into situations where you're going to have to figure out on the spot how to deal with this. So, yeah, she's very inspiring. And actually, after sitting through a couple of her classes, and I don't know if it was because it was on a Saturday morning, but <laughs> basically the idea for the periodical came out of doing her classes because I just thought, oh, like that just makes sense for us to be doing something now and trying to connect each other rather than sort of waiting till we're at the end of it and everybody goes their different ways. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm sure she'll be glad to hear that her different way of teaching has inspired people to, to kind of do new things and create something where it didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what we need in education. We need to be decolonizing and disrupting education in social work, but we also need to be thinking about what are we trying to achieve in our social workers and is writing an essay that's been well referenced the way to check that they're doing okay and that they're going to be the social workers we want. I agree. I mean, I think that's part of the the motivations behind the podcast as well is it's an ongoing learning, um, I think, for a lot of professions maybe they don't have the same identity with their profession as we do as social workers. And I think you're right when we're talking about, you know, we look at anybody you come in contact with will overlap with something we deal with in social work. Cause we're talking about the whole human condition and systems and families and networks and policy and politics and the environment, everything has an impact on how we integrate. And so you you kind of stand a degree I mean, I don't think that's enough. I think that's just the bare minimum. You need to step into the world of social work. Mm -hmm. And then that's that ongoing process of connecting with your peers, supervision, reading books or journal articles or podcasts or 
you know, newsletters, like it's that ongoing learning of where you also fit in relation to that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think as the longer I've been in social work, the more I realised that my degree was just a starting point. Um, you know, like when you think about accountancy, you learn to use Excel, you learn like what the laws are. And every now and again, things change. But with social work, who you are as a person should fundamentally change because you are a social worker. And I think, yeah, like thinking back to mental health, that's a huge thing. We talk about boundaries and in a lot of ways, how do you put a boundary up between who you are as a person in your job, if that's a large part of our identity and the work we do, you can't, it, it is one and the same in a lot of ways. And so I think, yeah, that's why I'm really excited to talk to Sonia tomorrow because I think she has some really interesting points of view on that. Great. Well, we'll look forward. So when does that issue come out? It'll come out end of August, um, probably around the 24th of August, uh, which is like a Monday. Um, it sort of just depends given that the interviews go well and everybody's sort of tracking on time. That's the roundabout date. It'll come out. <laughs> so end of August, we'll go with that. Just before spring, the last winter edition. Yeah, if you like us on Facebook, you'll see a couple of the different um, guests we've got coming up. Um, we'll be posting a little bit so you'll get the notification that when it comes out. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again. Thank you and for having us. Hopefully we can do this a bit more regularly to align with your quarterly periodical. Yeah. <laughs> That's just what I call it. Magazine's probably easier. Who knows? I'm sure it's going to evolve into something else. Don't confuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources. And don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.